This episode of Theories of Americans is brought to you by Toyota. As a proud partner of those who dare to dream, Toyota isn't settling with having them as words on a page. The stories of these Asian American dreamers need to be seen, heard, and supported. We hope these stories will inspire you to chase your own Asian American dream. Welcome to the Asian Americans. Really excited to have you, especially on this conversation about dreaming, about the Asian American dream, what it has meant for you, building multiple businesses, and now at this uh, evolutionary stage in your career, helping other people uh, achieve their dream in a way that I think is both meaningful and impactful. I know you say often that one of the ways that we can also help fight the racism or discrimination that we face in traditional uh, institutions of higher education or corporate America is to just start your own damn thing. Yeah. And we all know uh, that one of the big barriers is help and support, especially financial support. And so you've spent a significant chunk of your career and your life's mission to help other people launch businesses. And so we're excited to learn more about that. We're doing an episode of The Earth Americans here on the road in a car. And we are actually sitting in the parking lot of Sunset Lane Elementary School. Sunset Lane Elementary School was where I first came to uh, school when I immigrated here. 30 years ago now, and it just happens to be the same city that your wife grew up in, and so here we are. It's kind of a surreal experience, I think, for me to be here, but tell us a little bit about your journey into coming into America and sort of how that identity helped you shape your viewpoint on how you want to help people. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I feel like being at an elementary school is kind of a big deal because that's where a lot of things sort of start. Like, that's sort of uh, the beginning of an American experience, to be sure, you know, being the child of... Chinese immigrants. My dad was a you know foreman at a machine shop, and my mom was a you know nurse assistant at a nursing home, and we lived in one and two bedroom apartments in California in Fremont. So it looked a lot like this, and um, I guess you know school was sort of just where I I felt you know maybe even most at home sometimes, <laughs> most accepting. I mean. I think there's a lot to be said for how difficult a lot of Chinese Americans and Asian Americans sort of experienced their childhood, because just some real hardships that our parents had to face. And uh, being a parent now, I sort of realize, well, <laughs> they started with a lot less than what they gave me. I so know. I sort of understand. But you know, when you're going through it, it's a much rougher childhood than you know what most might experience. You know, especially if for me, there was sometimes food insecurity, and my father was, uh, you really struggled to keep a job. And, uh, you know, he struggled with alcohol and addiction. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if I would wish that on people. Mm. And we, me and my wife spend a lot of time trying to give our children a very different experience. Right. And then the unanswerable question is, how different will they be to you? Right. I think that's the thing that I have also learned, too, is we're parenting children for the unknown. Uh, generationally, of course, but culturally, it'll be a very different place. And our kids are right about the same age. So in 20, 30 years, when they begin their careers, what do they want to be? How do they want to be? What do you think your parents and then maybe more broadly, our parent generation wanted for us 
And, and what was their definition, do you think, of what the American dream was? And how has, well, let's start with that. What do you think that was? Because they worked so hard, they came here with little or made this conscious decision to start over here in many cases. And we also recognize that for many, that choice wasn't their own to make. But for many of our families, it was a choice to sort of restart and to give us a different opportunity. And so what do you think they wanted for us from that sense of chasing this dream? I think one of the funniest things I remember is, um, you know, other families might do, you know, a lot of fun family things like going to the park on the weekends or traveling to, you know, Hawaii or like Yellowstone or different places like that. But I didn't have those memories because, you know, my parents didn't have the money for that. But uh, I remember my dad always really put a huge premium on knowledge. Mm. So instead of doing any of those things, I remember we'd spend a lot of time in technical bookstores. Really? <laughs> so my dad was an engineer. Huh. And, uh, you know, I, I think it was very interesting because he had sort of off the charts IQ. And then I don't know what it was. Like maybe it was, you know, just who he is or you know, the cultural aspects of coming from an Asian culture and not being able to thrive in a Western culture. Mm. He really struggled with his, you know, what would be classically viewed as like Western business style EQ. So even though he had the technical ability and the intelligence to sort of really move the mountains for the uh, you know firms that he worked for in you know, mechanical engineering and things right. like that, he couldn't hold down a job for that long. So, mm. you know, I think I was always, you know, sitting in Word, like helping him write his resume or send off resumes or he really struggled in his career. And um, I, I think it's interesting to think back now to what degree that affected me in my life now, because mm. um, it really did put me down this road. Like he, the great thing was he always spent money on computers. Right. And if I wanted to have access to the internet, you know, I got it way earlier than anyone else. It wasn't a question. It was just, oh, you know, you can get internet, you know, modem access to, you know, a PPP account on Netcom or something in the Bay Area. And uh, I also credit like growing up in, you know, Silicon Valley in Fremont and in the San Francisco Bay Area for being in sort of the cradle of a lot of this stuff. Like just by being there, it gave us the access to it. Like, right. whereas if we were in a lot of other places in the country, I don't know if we would have had that. And then I guess the craziest thing I realized recently was um, even when I was sort of a teenager, my dad would, he knew, he understood like there's sort of value in like both technology and capital. Mm. So he would actually even bring me to these like Chinese American or Asian American, like often Taiwanese um, business events and you know huh. they, they'd be like dinner like i think it was called the monty jade association i'm sure they're still operating down in you know san jose or silicon valley and uh, i would bring together you know so it was and this was in the era of silicon right so it was taiwanese semiconductor ceos mm -hmm. with like their vcs sitting down at, for a panel like you know and i was like 16 or 18 and uh my dad would like force me to come with him and then you know, I, I realized, you know, he did imprint a lot of things on me that, you know, and maybe this is one of the trickier things, right? Because uh, that didn't come for free. Like that, that came at great cost, actually, um, in terms of our relationship. I just remember him saying, you know, Gary, the things that I do and the things that I'm doing for you and like the way that I discipline you and like try to drive you to success. Um, 
you know, I'm not, I'm willing to sacrifice my relationship with you in order to get you to places where, to rooms and future that I could never have. Why do you think our parents, because I don't think you're alone in that, right? And, and they saw this notion of sacrifice or something being worth it as, as a trade-off. And, and they never, and maybe we now sit in a position of privilege to even have this conversation, obviously, but why do you think that they didn't think that was both possible? This notion of doing that and maintaining it. Because it, to me, sometimes could seem like it's a scarcity mindset manifesting itself or this lack of knowledge, but has that changed for you? I mean, obviously we're, we're both fathers and so we're, we fundamentally believe both are possible. And then when did you realize that was, that you went through that shift of perhaps not seeing as is to, to um, mutually exclusive polar opposites? When I look back on it, I think that we probably could have had it all if my dad, on, I mean, the funniest thing is I remember when I was 18, I uh, went to the library and I got the book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, <laughs> which is like, I, you know, it's just not, a, I, you know, I, I struggle to think about where in like sort of East Asian culture or books or, you know, even self-help where does that sort of literature exist? Yeah. And then now I realize, oh no, there's there's actually a very different business culture that exists in the West. Yeah. And it held back my father in like massive ways. And mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that seemed clear to me even as a as a kid was, yes, I'm going to be obsessed with technology, and that's always going to be my home base. Um, in the same way that for my father, he would go to technical bookstores, and like he always wanted to be the most technical person in the right. room. And uh, for me, I knew that I couldn't only be that because I saw what that did. Yeah. I needed to be the most technical person in the room who also could navigate the social situation and dynamic. Right. And, you know, work on the guanxi, you know, like to get what I needed done. Yeah. You know, even as a kid, like doing, uh, I remember doing Toastmasters as a mm. kid so that I wouldn't be afraid of public speaking or, um, and I remember, you know, there was actually a realtor who was like the the main mentor in that program and i remember being like 14 or 15 and uh he was the guy who taught me how to have a firm handshake he's mm. like no you don't have you know i didn't get that from right. my parents or like a classic western american upbringing with privilege would yeah. sort of teach you that immediately your father one of the first things your father would teach you is like right. you know, have a firm handshake because that's like the beginning of a relationship and yeah. if you have a weak handshake like what impression does that leave and first impressions matter all of those things that like uh, you know, my father didn't understand, and maybe it was too late for him to learn once he came to the country. So, I don't know. That, I, I don't know. I, mean, <laughs> I think it kind of comes back to that. I'm like, yeah. I, I realize now, like, you know, that, that also put me on a path where I was very, very driven. And um, to be frank, like, I definitely put my family plans and you know, sort of moving on with my life on hold until I, you know, sort of quote unquote, uh, solve the money problem. Yeah. And it's funny in a, you know, couple, you know, I, I'm about to start at Y Combinator and the founder of that place, you know, I feel like he really taught me about how to solve the money problem through starting a company. Yeah. And, you know, that's what, if I could like roll back time, that's probably the thing that I most would want for you know, my parents, it's like, I wish I could, you know, go back and teach my father, you know, in his, you know, teens and 20s, how to navigate, you know, 
Western business culture yeah. and, um, you know, keep a job and become a leader and a manager and like really build things and build organizations. And, uh, you know, he was so focused on the technology alone and I realized I needed both. And, uh, that now, you know, now we have the great privilege of trying to, you know, lead our kids into whatever that future is. And the future is changing so quickly that it's almost more important for them to know the sound of their own voice and sort of follow that as opposed to follow, you know, my father was very prescriptive and even right. then he was wrong. <laughs> you know, I think it's really interesting, this quick evolution. And I say quick, cause I think in the last two or three decades, our community, whether you're Korean, Chinese, South Asian, doesn't matter. We, we've been through this weird, uh, not weird, but this historic shift there's a very quick shift in how we think as a community. We went from, you know, uh, being that technical person of my knowledge will get me to places, which I think worked in Asia. And that's why our parents brought those notions here, right? It wasn't, um, you know, as diverse. It wasn't as EQ driven. And so the smartest people who produced the best got ahead. And I think that those skills were rewarded. And then I think there's this notion of the pendulum swinging way the other way when many of us immigrated here or where our parents came, where it was try to assimilate as much as we can. And I don't know if our parents actually used the word assimilate, mm. but it was be successful in America. And their definition of being successful in America was with a, a lot of elements of that heads down culture, just listen well, don't rock the boat, you know, almost try to blend in, which are all things that now we talk about openly in the professional development context of those are the things that perpetuate the modern minority myth. It leads to the bumping against the bamboo ceiling and all these things that limit us. And now we've come into this third chapter, in my opinion, of we're loving ourselves, both as individuals and as a community and saying, we can borrow elements from all of our cultures. And actually, that's a superpower. And mm -hmm. that's not the thing that we should be ashamed of. Totally. And you're now in a position, as you mentioned, you're moving on from initialized capital to the Y Combinator, and you've impacted so many entrepreneurs and have mentored even more along the way of advising people to own that superpower, not just for Asian Americans, but whatever anybody's superpower is, how has that helped you, I guess, see the power of entrepreneurship and power of manifesting, or even just, even before we can manifest, like realizing what our dreams are capable of? Because I think many of us grew up in a very box environment, right? Study hard, get that degree on your resume, mm -hmm. then go put some fancy logos on your resume that that's the plan that's the plan yeah. and then what's the plan after that there's no sort of work 40 years at the same place that doesn't exist anymore in our world and so when was that revelation for you you mentioned the the mentor at Y Combinator you've done a lot of these cool things that I think the stars align perfectly for you to get the exposure to technology in the region and in an environment but when did that light bulb kick off for you saying, hey, entrepreneurship is the way that I think we can forge ahead to craft my own vision of what success looks like for me. I think some, I, I credit just like growing up in San Francisco Bay Area, and that's the region that taught me, hey, this is where startups that, you know, start off as just an idea, mm -hmm. you know, Apple started in a garage, yeah. um, you know, the personal computer revolution started literally by, you know, people believing a thing that nobody else really believed. And then them with their hands, you know, building and selling a product that, you know, made, made them right, you know. I think that that's the closest thing there is to alchemy and magic in the world. Um, and 
you know, I just always think about the Steve Jobs quote where he says, all the things in your life that you, you know, you look around, they were designed and built by people who were not that different than you. Mm. And if you really internalize that, then you'll realize like you could have a hand in that. And yeah. you know, if once you realize that you'll never be the same. So when I was a kid, like that's, I, I knew I wanted to start a company and build a product and hopefully have, you know, and, you know, going deeper, I'm pretty convicted that, you know, technology is sort of the reason why we get to sit here and talk about ideas instead of, you know, subsistence farming, right? Like, you know, when you look at human history, it's like really sort of astonishing, like the rate of innovation, the, the rate of change that um, has sort of happened over the past, like even couple hundred years is just yeah. outrageous. And it's sort of accelerating and it's accelerating in our time. And so I think the most important thing is actually, well, you know, and it sort of depends on your worldview, right? Mm. Like if your current worldview is technology is bad and the world is going to hell and it's getting worse and worse, right. then that belief becomes self-fulfilling. Right. Um, and I think that's why also San Francisco and, you know, Y Combinator and like this culture of starting companies is important and valuable because I don't believe that. And mm. I want to meet and I want to surround myself with people who believe the opposite. Right. Um, because then your know, belief, you know, you mentioned manifestation, but it's like, yeah, like belief translates into, um, into reality right. when you add capital, which, you know, we and other supply like venture capital supplies that, um, when you add people, which is, you know, human capital. Right. And then the, the key thing that you as a founder would need to add is sort of the magic special sauce that binds it together, right? right? Like that's leadership, that's management, that's vision, that's consistency. And yeah, I think the hardest part today is that like when you open up the media, you don't hear much about that. You hear about all of the missteps. Right. Um, and you know, that serves a purpose and I'm glad it exists, right? Like not all technology is good and not all founders have good intentions. And we live in a fallen world where capitalism drives people to, you know, the fast buck, right? Yeah. Like even in crypto, there's sort of just very dramatic examples of that, right? You look at, you know, a Sam Bankman Freed at FTX versus a Brian Armstrong at Coinbase. Right. They have, you know, if you meet them, they are completely different people. Mm. Like they're the way they live their lives and their belief system is completely different. But, you know, from the out external world, like, you know, from pure media or social media, you can't tell that. Right. I, I agree with you. I, I think technology and, you know, um, as an entrepreneur myself, it's given me newfound realizations on what's possible, not only from a financial perspective, but prioritizing what's important and particularly as, as a father of young children, just wanting, or I guess needing to have the flexibility to control how I spend my time and all these more important things than perhaps uh, money and, and work, which I admit, and I think we all do, we are extremely privileged to be able to even have this conversation. Um, you know, privilege is another thing that I think comes up often, even in the world of startups and funding. You know, you and I are both Asian American men. We have, again, very privileged access to friends and networks where talking about this stuff is very common. And if obviously you had an idea or I had an idea, you know, finding a way to make it work and getting it on its feet a lot easier than most people. But if we look at the numbers, entrepreneurs of color, founders of Asian American descent, 
because we all are not all smart, rich, and connected, you know, contrary to the modern minority myth. How do we solve that problem? Or what is the recommendation and advice that you have to people who don't grow up with a Rolodex of friends who have that access or look the part? Um, you know, you talked about two founders just now, one who has been in the news quite often. And any time a story like that happens where you're like, how did that person get away with so much, especially from the fundraising and getting other people to invest in them? And they, not very many of them look like us, right? And so we always have been told that we have to work extra hard to prove ourselves, right? Um, at least those were the things that were taught by my grandfather and my parents. Because you're an immigrant in this country, you have to work harder. Is that still the case in venture world when you're looking at Asian American founded startups? And that's not to take away at all from many of our personal friends who are doing the work as you are to invest in founders that look like us, who can resonate with us and to help from more of a contextual help perspective rather than here's a check, go make me some money. How is that journey a little bit different perhaps for our community so far? And how do you see us being able to bridge that gap so that all people can have equal opportunity to create the next big, uh, not only life-changing, but also community-impacting uh, entity? It's a big question. I mean, from a purely personal standpoint, I feel like I've sort of learned the hard way on quite a lot of these things. You know, you were mentioning the bamboo ceiling. You know, I think that that's something that bothers me quite a lot. That like, when you look at the, you know, rank and file of technology companies, East Asians in particular, but Asians broadly uh, are, you know, very well represented. But then when you look at the leadership, um, East Asians are actually, you know, deeply underrepresented. Um, and that was something that I had to sort of come to grips with because if anything, like growing up, like even though I was in a community that was, you know, probably 30 or 40% Asian in Fremont in California, I think that I spent a lot of my childhood and, you know, uh, even young adult period pretending I was, you know, fully American, that like my very different and, you know, hardship sort of filled childhood like I, I sort of rejected it and you know to my friends and to the external world and at work and everything else like I was not myself right mm -hmm. I had pretended that you know none of that affected me I'm a normal American like there's you know n no difference between me and like the other kid in the other desk in school mm -hmm. and um, to your point earlier I, I think that Asians Asian Americans and then East Asians in particular that have like a much stronger sort of communitarian, like filial piety sort of yeah. <laughs> experience, you sort of like realize that that does have an impact on how you act in social settings, especially in workplaces. And, um, you know, I would pull my punch, right? Because I, I sort of thought like, oh, well, you know, based on my family system, which is, of course, like your programming, right. like it's, you know, it's going to have an impact on you because it's like your 10,000 hours. Mm. You know, and until you acknowledge that, you know, Jung says that, you know, until you, you know, make your unconscious conscious, uh, you know, it will control you and you'll be enslaved to it. And, um, yeah, I feel like that's sort of the East Asian, Asian American experience is like, you must realize that you did come up with a different experience. Right. Um, and that doesn't mean that you should, you know, A, pretend it doesn't exist and B, like, it means that you should integrate it as a part of yourself, but also know like, hey, like the business culture that you might be in 
requires you to speak up for yourself right right like when wrongs are done to you right like you don't have to you know be the loudest in the room but hey have a private conversation with your boss about hey this happened and you know can i get your advice don't eat it right and so i think that was those are the things that are most valuable to me that i had to learn the hard way and I actually had to, you know, frankly go to therapy and I had to go to, you know, I went, I had, had to hire an exec coach and, yeah. and, you know, all of that helped massively yeah. because that's what allowed me to make the right decisions and thrive across many different like inflection points in my career. And earlier in my career, my prefrontal cortex, my brain would say like, oh, this is fine. This is fine. Like I actually like wouldn't be able to sleep, mm. you know, my heart rate would go up and I would just like sort of melt down and these were like directly related to me not properly advocating for myself as an individual right there are times in my my, you know my career where i gave up leadership positions because someone asked me to when it was rightfully mine for Mm. instance or um or in other cases like people being promoted above me right um just because like sort of in aggregate i just didn't lay out like these are the reasons why i'm the right person for this I think it's those conversations, I hope and I know, are more common today than perhaps when you and I were going through school and the early parts of our career. Uh, we see it happening at schools, at the graduate level, and in particular, uh, perhaps a, you know, a silver lining to a lot of the unfortunate headlines that we've seen in our own community or about the community in the last two or three years has been that it's forced the conversation within large organizations to talk about what does it mean to be an Asian American person in a corporate environment? What does it mean for us to advocate for ourselves? Why is it a little bit different for us to define leadership and being vocal and being a great leader even in that? And so I, I hope that we're, you know, I, I really hope that one of these days we can talk about all of this stuff in the past tense and to talk about how we can move forward from there. Another way that I think we're normalizing these conversations is through content. And you make a ton of content and you're about to step into a role that is highly visible globally as one of the, you know, the faces and voices of the venture movement. And I think it's critically important. Yes, the content is good. You're smart, you're sharp, you've proven yourself. But the fact that there's going to be a Chinese American man as the president CEO of Y Combinator, many people, I know that you get stopped even when you're traveling with family from your YouTube folks say, hey, it's Gary, you know, who makes the video content. How has that helped sort of uh, understand your power to impact the next generation in a positive way? And what more can be done for people to own that voice, perhaps in a channel that doesn't require permission, like YouTube or a podcast to say, I think I've got some great things to say. Maybe I can inspire a younger version of me and to really inspire other people to pers- uh, follow their dreams. It's a great question. I mean, I, I think it's fractal. Like I'm just sort of following in the footsteps of people who you know, taught me a lot. And, you know, even the entire idea of Y Combinator, like blows my mind, because, you know, I was one of those people who, you know, was caring about my resume, and I was building my career. And, you know, I went off to work at Microsoft as a program manager out of, you know, after I did Stanford CS. And, you know, I was, you know, I actually like wanted to be a management consultant, like I sort of fell for that, right. And, (laughs) You know, I was lucky to not get any of those jobs because that would have put me like deeply on Very the lucky. sort of sort of like the path, right? I did that. It wasn't fun. <laughs> I mean, what's funny is like being an investor and trying to help people like, you know, 
it's similar, right? It's definitely an advisory job. Yep. But that being said, I was like, I I found entrepreneurship and the idea that, you know, I won't I wasn't meant to have a job mm. and or I could create a product from scratch from Paul Graham's essays, which, you know, to me were like before Twitter, before YouTube, before any social media platform happened. Like he was, you know, sort of writing about his own experience as a technologist. He's, you know, one of the most famous people who was, you know, pushing forward this the state of this programming language list. Mm. And then out of that, he started a company, sold it to Yahoo, and then started Y Combinator to really teach people, well, if you're a technologist uh, and you're smart, like, you know, the hard, you have the hard part already figured out. It's, you know, being smart. Like, you know, the hard part about chess is being smart, not, you know, not knowing how the pieces move. So you can take people who are smart, who are technical, who are very capable, who are skilled. And I would extend that to like PMs and, you know, people in sales and design and, you know, uh, it's just like all these other disciplines that are like related, you know, it's not just engineering. It's like the act of building itself. You can teach them how to how to do these things. And then Y Combinator sort of became this magnet, like in 2008, 2009, when I was working for a Peter Thiel startup, Palantir, and, you know, I worked at Microsoft, I realized, oh, there are these other people who, you know, I'm getting paid, I'm working 80, 90 hours a week sleeping at the office to get 0.25% of a startup. And, you know, I met uh, friends of friends who came in and we were trying to recruit them to quit their startup. But of course, in, you know, it's sort of a competing battle of who has the more powerful meme. And, uh, you know, instead of us getting them to quit their startup, they made me realize that, um, you know, they're working as hard as I am, but they own 93% of their company because, mm. you know, Y Combinator gave them some money and, <laughs> you know, they're off to the races and they did end up selling their business for tens of millions of dollars and right. solving the money problem. And um, I think that's the original version of um, realizing that the internet is actually changing society in such a fundamental way yeah. that uh, now, you know, billions of people for the first time can more or less directly interact with one another. Whereas before that, you know, you had to go to a conference, you right. had to be from the right school, you had to be from the right class, you had to be the right skin color, you had to be right. the right gender. <laughs> like, right. There's sort of all of these uh, vestiges of the 19th and 20th century and like time and immemorial that are like fading away in this time now where like it shouldn't matter any of those things. It should only matter like the quality of your ideas right. and uh, how powerful your meme is. <laughs> <laughs> but your meme becomes a religion right because it becomes a magnet that like brings people together and then there's something super magic about that like when you you know when i'm sitting uh in a cohort of y combinator and you see all of the smartest people of a particular generation trying to start a company hmm. like side by side there's an energy there that like you never like i remember getting that at stanford once in a while right yeah. but like that was like it's every single day at Y Combinator. So I think that's like one of the big secrets that and that's why content's powerful. That's why like content combined with community is extra powerful. And then when you look at uh, something like, you know, what we built with initialized capital or like Y Combinator, um, you know, this sort of joke is these are sort of um, media companies that monetize by taking equity. <laughs> 
in uh, people's <laughs> companies. But, you know, and what people get out of it is like a community of people, right. uh, a lot of help. And then it takes a village, actually, to be able to do these things. I, I think it's wonderful. And uh, if we haven't said it already, congratulations on, on the honor, because I think, again, I think it's important as a testament to not only the career you've built, but the impact you've had. And the team's belief that you will continue to even further that impact. We, when we get to the advice part, we often talk to the young people about how you can dream bigger and how you can get through these mental blocks. Um, but father to father, uh, and perhaps talking to ourselves in 10, 15 years, what's your advice to Asian American parents who are still struggling with perhaps seeing their kids go down a path that is so unknown, so scary? You know, maybe you sent your you, you worked your butt off as whatever you did to survive in this country to send your kid to the right school. And then they come home and say, hey, mom, hey, dad, I want to be a entrepreneur. I got an app idea. I want to make YouTube for a living. And these are scary things that go against this notion of stability and security in this country. Uh, what's the message to the parent generation who are equally having to deal with this tectonic shift and what it means to be successful and ways to solve, as you've said many times, the money problem first? I mean, I think number one, like the ideal thing for young people is to just get really good at like one or two things, right? You don't have to be, you know, you do probably need to start there and it might, you know, and a lot of this probably needs to come out of their interest, right? Um, I remember like my father, even in college, he actually uh, was so certain that electrical engineering, for instance, was the future that he said he would stop, uh, you know, helping me with. The, the tuition payments if uh, if I didn't do electrical engineering, mm. for instance. And um, that was wrong, actually. So I don't know. Some of it is like every child is so different yeah. and you almost just need to give, you, you need to let them figure out what they're great at um, and just like sort of support that. Yeah. Um, and then it's, it's true what they say, like, you know, if you truly, you know, figure out what you love to do and do that as your job, then you never work a day in your life. And I feel like I was lucky to find that. And that's sort of what I want for everyone. Yeah. And now, you know, in sort of an age where, um, you know, I, I would sort of go back to the internet here, where in an age where, you know, if you look 20 to 50 years ago, um, if you got really good at w one thing, or if you were really excited about a particular like hobby or interest or type of media, like, you know, and you're sitting in, you know, X city with like 10,000 people or a hundred thousand people in it, like, how are you going to meet? You'd have to go to a city right? and you'd have to, you know, go to the big city and like try your hand at it. And, you know, if you failed, you'd go back home and, you know, that wouldn't work. But now it's like, you don't have to you know, going to a city helps, but the internet means like, however weird and interesting you are, you will find like all the other people in the world who are as interesting and as weird as you. And you can from there, you know, create things, right? Yeah. Whether it's media, whether it's a product, whether it's software, whether it's technology, whether it's a service, like whatever it is, like you can go and however weird someone is, you know, if you go infinitely deep, weird, and then you find all the other people who are working on that, and yeah. then you can find you know funding for it. Then, hey, that's a startup, right? Yeah. It, you know, it might not even it might not be a traditional startup, but it is a thing that could grow, 
and set the world on fire. And, you know, that's pushing forward, um, you know, human knowledge or human capability in all the different ways. I, I love your story, Gary, because I think your story is obviously not done yet, but I think you're at that stage where you are still so giving, not just only of your time, money, resources, but also of the knowledge and the experiences to ultimately shorten that knowledge curve and that learning curve for the next person who wants to do what you did. Because I think the opportunities are so great in not only creating a, a great future for your families, but also to solve some of these problems that exist in society. I know we touched upon it briefly, but you're very active and passionate about your home city of San Francisco and making sure that, you know, uh, things and people are in the right position to help advance it in a certain way. You do a lot of things behind the scenes to help people that nobody ever knows about. And so not only from the tangible and tactical things that you've done in your day job, Gary, I think really a, a great person to look up to, to follow for impact across the board. And for those of us lucky enough to know you in a personal way, you spend a ton of time with your kids and travel with them and, and being a great and present dad, which I think obviously is uh, how we can manifest what it means for us to be great, uh, successful, whatever's right. And so I, I think it's been so cool to chat with you. We're sitting in the parking lot that this was my first like American experience. Totally. Uh, moving here literally 30 years ago in 92. Uh, Mrs. Woodworth was my uh, mean, grumpy Filipino American third grade teacher. Uh, still have vivid memories of that. And then to have this conversation with you here about what it means for us to have evolved individually as a community to redefine what the Asian American dream means, not only for us, but more importantly for our kids and putting all the things in place so that ultimately they can do whatever the hell they want and still find success and meaning perhaps a little bit differently even than the way that we currently define it today. And so best of luck in your new role. I, I cannot wait to see what you do next. And most importantly, just really excited to see the impact that you have, because I know there's a lot of people that look up to you and, and look to you as a, uh, you know, uh, not just for good content, like I said, but contextually resonant and relevant information and advice to inspire them to the next thing. So thank you. Happy New Year. Happy and New Year. Uh, thanks, everybody. Thank you to Gary Tan for sharing his story of his Asian American dream. You can learn more about Gary and all the wonderful things that he's working on at Gary Tan on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. That's Gary with two R's. Also, thank you to Toyota for their partnership of the Asian American Dreamer series on this podcast. Head over to YouTube to watch the full video version of this episode and check out at the Asian Americans on Instagram to view short form video highlights. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and the Asian Americans, keep on dreaming.